Sufferings, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with Adam Popescu, journalist, reporter, who just wrote a piece for the MIT Technology Review, highlighting the Bitcoin mining operation that is going on in Virunga National Park in Congo. Fascinating story that highlights the benefits that Bitcoin mining particularly can provide to energy systems. I'm not going to explain everything here. Listen to the episode. Uh, it's fascinating. Not only the Bitcoin mining aspect of it, but everything going on in Congo and the quagmire of a political situation um, that exists there. Very thought-provoking, Rip. It was brought to you by our good friends at River. River is a Bitcoin company built by Bitcoiners for Bitcoiners. They don't trust any third parties. They build all their infrastructure. They've built their own wallets. If you hold Bitcoin on River, you can be insured that it's 100% reserved and held in a multi-sig wallet that the River team has built. They're not, they don't have any third-party dependencies like Prime Trust or anything like that. They, they build their own infrastructure. They operate a Bitcoin company. You can buy Bitcoin via River. If you DCA on River, you're not going to pay any fees. They have fee-free DCA. It's a beautiful thing. You can mine via River, and now they have River Lightning Services, which is an API that will help you build Lightning Network apps. If you're an engineer looking to leverage an API, River has built one for you. It's a beautiful thing. River also wants you to take control of your Bitcoin. Yes, they run an exchange. Yes, they will custody your Bitcoin if you keep it on the exchange, but they highly encourage you to take self-custody, and they have a bunch of blogs in education that can teach you how to do that. So if you have your go-to exchange, maybe they they have Bitcoin, but they have all these other shit coins and um, you want to try like a Bitcoiner company, River is the company for you. I use River, have been using it for years. I'm an extremely happy customer. They're just doing it the right way, Bitcoin only focused, not distracted by shit coins building products that you want. They have a lightning wallet in the app too. I should mention that. Go to river.com slash TFTC. Check it out. If you're not on there yet, just check it out. River.com slash TFTC. This shirt was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're down the hall. If you're going to take River's advice and bring Bitcoin into your own custody, Unchained has that product for you. It's a two or three multi-sig vault in which you hold two keys to always have full control of your Bitcoin. Unchain holds the third Bitcoin, or not the third Bitcoin, the third key in the two or three multi-sig quorum built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, if you're ever in a pinch, you need Unchain to be the second in the two or three multi-sig, they're there for you. They have a concierge team. It's going to take you from zero to having it set up. So if you're an individual, a high net worth individual, a business looking to hold Bitcoin in your balance sheet, this vault product is perfect for you. Eliminate single points of failure holding all your Bitcoin on an exchange, single point of failure, holding it in a single SIG wallet, single point of failure, eliminate that single point of failure, get into multi-SIG. Unchained's concierge team is here to get you comfortable with multi-SIG, get you comfortable with their setup. They're going to send you hardware wallets, help you get those set up, make sure you're backing up your seed phrases. You'll set up your vault. Then they'll advise you on how to geographically disperse your wallets and your backups. That's a beautiful thing. Use the code TFTC. Go to unchain.com slash concierge. Use the code TFTC. When you sign up, you'll get $50 off their concierge onboarding service. They also have other products, their loan desks, their IRA. Um, they're just 
rolled out inheritance protocol, inheritance protocol as well. They're innovating. They're doing it the right way. You're not going to get FTX. You're not going to get BlockFied on Unchained. No free application, multi-sig. They do it the right way. We only give you companies that do it the right way. Unchained.com slash concierge. Uh, did not reboost for this episode because we just recorded back to back. We have not posted the previous episode before this rip. So there are no boosts yet. So I'll read two episodes worth of boost uh, next week. Enjoy it, freaks. Dickie! You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What's up, freaks? Welcome back to TFTC. This is a this is a rip that was put together last minute, literally in the last hour. I'm sitting down with Adam Popescu, uh, who wrote an incredible piece in the MIT Technology Review that dropped last Friday, I believe. Is that correct, mm-hmm. Adam? Yeah, on Friday. And you're telling the story of Virunga National Park in Congo and how they are leveraging excess capacity at a hydro plant that they've been building to mine Bitcoin to help fund the national park, which has been hit by a wave of uh, misfortunes in the form of Ebola and COVID, which have restricted tourist revenue. And so they've been leaning on on Bitcoin mining to to fund the park. Um, Before we get into the Bitcoin mining, I, I think it's important to learn more about Virunga why you went over there and, and what you saw, Adam. Absolutely. Um, first off, thank you for having me. Um, good question. Why did I go over there? Why are we even talking about this place? I think that uh, when you think of the word Congo or when the average American hears Congo, they probably go, you mentioned Ebola, you know, they probably go in their mind to the book. Uh, which was called Congo by Michael Crichton, which is about a, basically a killer gorillas. Or before that, um, there's been a lot about transmissible diseases from this region. There's a lot of misinformation there. There's Joseph Conrad from Heart of Darkness over 100 years ago or about 100 years ago. It's always been a place that has a lot of mystery, a lot of exoticism, uh, and a lot of misinformation. At the same time, it's got a lot of wealth potential. So back in the day, it was uh, rubber and ivory and timber, and also just manpower because it was part of it was part of uh, Belgium in terms of like King Leopold, who was uh, the former king of, of Belgium in the late 18th century or sorry, 19th century. Basically, it was a private country, and the guy never even stepped foot there. So. This is the past of, of this of this region, a very complicated, many different languages, a country the size of Western Europe, not many roads, not much electricity, and the last 20 years, a lot of war over um, a lot of over minerals. So cobalt, coltan, a lot of the things that function or allow our technology to function are derived from here, from these rare earth mineral mines. 
Yeah, that was. So, um, go ahead. I was gonna say co- the cobalt mining particularly has been been uh, in the news recently. I know Joe Rogan interviewed somebody who went down there, really trying to expose the. Um, I can't think of a better word, atrocity of, of what's going on in those mines. Well, yeah, there's a new book called Cobalt Red, which is all about this uh, issue about supply chains and where we get the, the pieces of technology that have to function or to allow our lives to, to move at a really brisk clip. But these are the kind of places where, for lack of a better term, life is cheap. People are willing to do really heinous uh, things to, to get what they want. And there's a lot of gray area in terms of legality and, and what's acceptable ethically and morally. So all of these things are for for a writer, for a reporter, and for a reading audience, uh, incredibly rich and visual and interesting. A very rich palette to paint with, if you will. And uh, I have a background where I have gone uh, to sort of end of the world places and told stories that are a little bit counterintuitive or a little bit surprising, I hope, that will get readers' attentions. Um, that's everything from going to the Himalayas for various places, looking at man-made glaciers and tracking snow leopards to the Galapagos where the Chinese fishing armadas are fishing a national park and exploiting that uh, rich resource. So in, in Verona National Park, which is known for a Netflix documentary about these rare mountain gorillas that are being threatened and a group of rangers who are like a law enforcement body who are risking their lives to protect them. That was what I knew. I didn't know much beyond that. Mm-hmm. And over the course of many months, talking to the park and getting them to, to vet me and verify me and what have you, I ended up going there in March, late March of last year. Actually arrived in Congo, March 23rd, which is very symbolic because, as you alluded to, M23, the March 23 movement is the big militia group in this region. And when I was uh, arriving on March 23rd, it was very auspicious. I'm not really into that kind of. Not, I'm not a. I don't look at numerology or any of that stuff, but at the same time, it felt kind of kind of weird. And by the time I left, there was actually, unfortunately, uh, an attack by them that just coincided with me leaving. So it was very sobering and very real. And um, my goal there, I heard about the hydro uh, power plants. I um, ended up doing a story for New Scientist, that magazine, it's a British publication, which mostly focuses on science and conservation issues. We looked at the hydro. I also did a profile on the Parks Prince, Emmanuel Demerode from the New York Times. That looked at him as a figure and some of the controversies and successes he's had. But when I was there, they said, you know, hey, we have something to show you that no one really knows about. And that's this uh, the Bitcoin mine in the jungle. And when I saw this, you know, basically a million different thoughts flooded my mind, but the, the, the big one for you and your audience is that this is an incredible story that needs to be told. And when I came home, I started crafting it and, and pitching it to uh, some of my contacts. And, and here we are almost uh, nine, ten months later. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what it really highlights 
number one, the importance of energy, because I think a really interesting point that you make in the beginning of your article is that there was a material amount of deforestation because it's a national park, but there are Congolese who actually live within the park and um, try to uh, try to go about their lives. And there was a material amount of deforestation going on because people were cutting down trees um, to, to get energy in their houses. And so a solution to that is building uh, a hydro dam that would produce reliable uh, electricity that they could use instead of cutting down the trees. And so that's another topic that's been a recurring theme on this podcast is the importance of energy, particularly to uplift um, people in the developing world out of poverty and to give them a sort of base layer of um, quality of life that they can then begin to build a better life on top of. And what we've come to find throughout history and more acutely over the last year, I would argue is that reliable energy is extremely important to uh, uplift downtrodden uh, areas of the world out of poverty and bring them into the modern world. And um, that's one thing that Bitcoiners have been talking about for quite a bit. And that's why I'm sure I'm not the only Bitcoiner who uh, is happy that you wrote your piece, but it, it validates something that we've been saying is that Bitcoin mining particularly uh, can be this buyer of first resort to help incentivize either the, the build out of these reliable energy projects or uh, sustain them in times when demand is lower than otherwise would be like it has been in Virunga due to the fact that they can't have tourists come in. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly complicated and controversial theory or, or practice of development here uh, to give a little more backstory of what we're talking about for those who haven't read the article. Essentially there are a series of hydroelectric power plants in this area. Uh, like I said before, there's no power grid, so there's no way that someone can just connect to the country's grid. Roads are all pretty much all dirt, so incredibly undeveloped in terms of modern amenities. The One of the issues here is that um, having, how do I put this? Um, there's a, there's, I'm searching for the right, the right words here because basically what I'm trying to say is it's not a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. It's not that this is all good or this is all bad. It, it, we, we tend here in the U.S., or at least I'll speak for myself, uh, things work or they don't. You know, we, we tend to look at, we, you know, you call up 911, the authorities arrive in time or they don't. Um, you turn on your tap, it either works or it doesn't. Your phone bill, et cetera, things like that. We come to rely on these things and we take, kind of take for granted. In a lot of the developing world, resources or, or amenities that we come to, to think of as second nature are really the purview of the wealthy. And there's a lot of trickle down. And there's, if one household has a hookup to, the, to electricity, for instance, maybe seven or eight people get it through extension and that can help um, a group of people. Not everyone wins and it causes, can cause a lot of jealousy, a lot of issues, a lot of corruption. So, you know, I, I say this because I don't think that this is a one size fits all. This is the solution to this region's problems or this is something we can replicate in other uh, challenging de developing regions. I think for the Bitcoin community, it's a great narrative because, as you said, this says, 
you know, there's a lot of vilification of using energy that uh, pumps fossil fuels, um, causes um, issues within local communities, etc. Corruption. This is um, something that you, your folks, can say, "Hey, wait a second, this is clean energy and it's helping." And I think it is. At the same time, what makes this compelling, what makes this controversial, is who's benefiting. You know, if there's millions of people here, how many of them really get a piece? How many of them really benefit? Um, and my argument, argument, or maybe my pers- perspective as, as an outsider when I come there, if a place is, is kind of neglected by the rest of the world, if it's too dangerous for foreign investment, if it's too dangerous that the UN has the biggest mission, that no, most people don't even know this. They've been there for 20 years. They have a billion dollar plus mission, thousands of troops, and they don't do shit. That the locals don't like them. And there's, it's complicated, but in a, in a quick, you know, one second synopsis, um, they haven't really known what to do. And they, that's caused a lot of traction and a lot of, um, a lot of animosity with local communities. So, um, if only, you know, if, if, if this park and the resources are saved, if a small percentage of locals benefit, is that a win? Is that a positive? I mean, these are the kind of things that I'm trying to get out in the piece. Uh, there are a lot of gray areas that aren't as cut and dry morally as we might have in other places with, with other endeavors. What are some of the examples of things that may not be as cut and dry? Well, there's a, there's, you mentioned the deforestation. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still deforestation. You know, you can, if you're leaking in a lot of places, you start to plug them up, you might not be leaking as much, but you're still leaking, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot of the problems here are political problems that caused by extension dominoes to happen. You know, a lot of the people who become radical, and by radical meaning picking up a weapon, it's the same conditions that can be happening in the Middle East. It's the same conditions that could be happening in inner city America. It's the lack of resources. It's trauma. And it's also feeling of desperation. So when you feel these kind of, the weight of these things, and maybe you're really hungry too, you know, and you don't have a piece of land, you're willing to do anything because you're in a position where you don't have a lot of options. That's the scenario in this region. So by providing more stability, lighting, water pumping stations, the potential for electricity, maybe not everyone gets it, but it's possible. And a lot of it is paid for by this operation, the Bitcoin mine. Well, then you would you could say, okay, these are beneficial. Again, not everyone will get a piece, but it's moving the needle in a place where the government itself and foreign actors are not. Yeah. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It, if Complicated, right? Yeah, it's very complicated, but I, I do. It's why I really like your story. I want to highlight it is because it, it paints a 
an encouraging picture of, yes, it's still chaotic. You mentioned towards the end of the article, as you were getting out, there was missiles being shot uh, over the park and um, the hydroelectric dam uh, was taking artillery fire. And that's unsettling, but through all of that, there is a silver lining and a, a gleaming uh, glimmer of hope that the, the, there does seem to be a, a workable model that is just slowly iterated on and built on over time. It can provide locals with, again, a base layer of, of comfort and utilities that, that would disincentivize them from picking up those guns or, or getting desperate or prevent them from getting to a, a place of desperation or at least lower the probability of it. Um, and yeah, they, they get, the, the story only gets more fascinating from here considering the characters that are involved. Um, right. so there was uh, a Belgian prince who took over um, uh, right. managing the national forest, uh, I believe a decade ago, was it 2012 or 2014? I can't recall the date in my mind, but... Yeah, again, here's another, depending on, on your, you know, we're all experts from afar and we all have, we all make an opinion about something, some of it is informed and some of it's not, and um, it's easy to throw to throw dirt at somebody who appears to not belong in a place. Um, this character you're talking about, his name is Emmanuel Demerode. Uh, yes, he is a Belgian prince by blood or by, by birth. Um, he's also a guy who's lived in the Congo and slept in a tent for the past 20 some odd years. You know, guy who survived an assassination attempt and took several bullets in the chest. Survived the surgery, translated the surgery to doctors who didn't speak a common language, sacrificed his family in a, in a uh, made many personal sacrifices in order to, to, to see this through. And when you look at that big picture of this, this character, what really comes out is, um, is I think, a, a, a belief that he has for change. Some of his detractors would say that it hasn't worked. At the same time, you know, we don't know what would have existed without it in terms of could have been some kind of power vacuum, that it could have been worse. It's so hard to say in these places, but you need people who believe. Also, you have, when you're in a leadership position, it's very, it's inevitable to have enemies. It's inevitable to be seen as an outsider, which he is. You know, can you can you be an outsider? Can you be an extension or symbolic of the past and yet be a good person in this capacity? Um, you know, those are these are the, these are like the heavy stuff to, that I tried to to wrestle with in the article, and I think that you know it's easy to again it's easy to have a you know, think about these, okay, Belgian prince and a country with a dark colonial past from Belgium. He's got to be a bad guy, you know? He's got to be, uh, he's got to be all the, the boogeyman type stuff you think about. And then you meet him and you see how this guy lives. You see his morals. You see his values. You see some of the change. I mean, it's like pushing a boulder uphill. He keeps coming down, but he keeps fighting. And you have to, it's hard not to have respect for the guy. And it's hard not to uh, want to root for him. 
which is something you're not supposed to maybe say as a reporter. But again, you're where I think if you are, you know, it's it's like pretending to 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 be this to not have an to not have an emotional reaction to a situation or a character. I mean, we all do. You know what I mean? You try to give someone the 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 benefit of the doubt, and you try to do right by them at the end of the day, no matter how you feel about them. But uh, you you have to admire his tenacity, whether or not you believe in it. The fact that he's sticking with something uh, under incredible challenges, you, you it's it's impressive. Not really. I mean, like you mentioned, he's literally taken bullets uh, for this national park and and kept chugging and trying to innovate and improve the quality of life for people living in the area and obviously protect the gorillas and and the rainforest um and it's really interesting but he would say here's here's this so we would think of it as protecting the the, the gorillas and the rainforest he would say well what we really got to do is protect the people Mm -hmm. and we really got to give them an incentive and that's where this is all about because you know, again, maybe this project, it doesn't put money in the pocket of every single person, but if it moves the needle to create some level of stability or improves upon it, then that's a net positive. It's, yeah. It can't be the only thing, but you know what I mean? Like when you have a, a neighborhood that's a bad neighborhood and you have that one anchor business and you have something developed next to it and it's over time, it starts to grow. And, and if you can look at it, that kind of simplified analogy, you know, maybe that's helpful to understand what we're, we're talking about. Yeah, one step at a time, slowly but surely. And I think in the article you mentioned that this hydroelectric dam via the electricity will provide to the market could provide something like 12,000 jobs in the area, which is... Well, it, it's already provided. Yeah, those are, um, and it's a rough estimate. But yeah, I, I went and visited some of these jobs. I mean, basic stuff, but soap factory, you know, vegetable oil, uh, chia seeds, chocolate, a lot of chocolate. We didn't, I didn't know this. Tons of chocolate comes from this area. They also have a, the park has a project with um, with Ben Affleck actually creating a, a chocolate company to bring it to the U.S. But the, the chocolate's already in stores in the EU. But I mean, it's a good it's a good business idea. It also provides a stable market for the local chocolate farmers. Um, you know, like chia seeds, coffee, like lots of these kind of things show that there's a lot of potential for the kind of grassroots community businesses we're talking about. Um, and that those are all, again, it, you know, when you think of maybe like a Yellowstone, if you were here, you know, Yellowstone is helping ranchers and farmers with soybeans or whatever, uh, or cattle, you might think, well, that sounds odd. But if Yellowstone didn't have roads, if Yellowstone Rangers were being shot at every day by the guys from, you know, the local ranch or whatever, I mean, then you kind of have to frame it, okay, they're being forced into building some of this stuff by circumstance. Um, and again, you know, this becomes so utterly fascinating that that's why I think people are, I think that's why, why we're talking, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, there's Bitcoin mines everywhere. There's national parks all over the place, but there's all these confluence of, of factors together that just makes a kind of, you know, how is this possible? What does it mean? What's going on here? And what's the long-term sustainability? Can it be replicated elsewhere? That is just, you know, some of it's a head scratcher too. 
Yeah. And so let's dive in there, get like more into the specifics of the Bitcoin mine. What did you observe? I mean, you tell the story of, of there's a, a rich French uh, Bitcoiner crypto person that has decided to go in on this. They have a number of containers, um, some of which Varunga owns and the other which this French uh, Bitcoiner owns and pays electricity um, to to the uh, electric to the excuse me the uh, hydroelectric dam in Virunga National Park, and so they're not only mining themselves, but they're also producing electricity revenues from uh, this French gentleman who's who's mining alongside mm-hmm. them. So to actually look at the, the operation, the, you have to fly in. You can take a you can drive on the road. It's incredibly dangerous. And it takes a long time. It's dirt roads and jungle, so when it gets muddy, it's also <laughs> better have some some backup tires and whatnot. But um, we flew in. It's a very sh- short, steep runway. Either you're going to be freaked out or it's exciting, and it's so it, like it's kind of you're flying in the middle of nowhere and you're. you're battling altitude and then there's this little strip of patch between the trees comes out and you land there and i felt you know for me like this is i'm like a like a kid you know i'm just i'm wowed by this I'm, i don't need to know what to expect and the actual the actual hydro plant it, it's it's very clean and like actually beautiful if you could say that about a piece of machinery but because it it's just um it's such a stark contrast to the relative underdevelopment in the in the area where people have there's a lot of people who ride around on these bicycles that are made out of um wood that look like something from the flintstones you know like uh, i'm not trying to, to 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 be insulting to them but it's just you know, very basic kind of stuff that, that don't have the don't have tires that they can just go to the local store. They don't have a lot of stuff. So there's a lot of very, I guess, bootstrap type stuff. So to see this piece of modern machinery or modern the modern world here and the level of professionalism, again, it's just like it's very wow because not too far away, um, you have rebel groups who are not cool with this shit you know yeah rightly so i mean they're they're they're, you know it it also is a bit of a hard to to wrap your head around because you think okay well this is a very professional operation there have here's 10 10 containers and they look like shipping containers and inside um again very clean um you would step inside and you could be anywhere you know there's engineers and people are certified and they know what they're doing and then you see when you're looking around, well, there's there's a lot of guys with guns. There's a lot of guys who look very serious and um, are providing security for this to, to, to run. And it's kind of hard to, you know, there is an excitement and there is um, a feeling of something special is happening here. And it's also tempered by the notion of how tenuous is this mm-hmm. you know what's stopping the local my my rebels or the m23 coming and taking this 
Uh, is that on their radar? If they took it, and this is something I actually asked um, Emmanuel, if they took it, do they have, could they get the password? Could they then get the wallet? Can they, you know, how at risk, is this another commodity in this area with full of commodities from diamond to gold to cobalt? Is this something else that's, that's now dangerous? And, you know, that makes it just, that makes it, when you think about it, you know, how do you get an investor to invest in this? You know, how do you get someone to come and spend three months as a foreigner? Um, what do they tell their wife or, or husband? Or what are they, what kind of insurance is there? Uh, how safe are they? Um, and essentially, you're putting your, your safety in the hands of someone else. You know, even me just being there, I have to trust to a degree that these people know what they're doing and they have a secure location that if something happens that, that you know that they know what they're doing and that, that, so that in and of itself i mean you think about all these things and there is a level of risk that is higher than other bitcoin mining operations in other undeveloped countries whether it's central asia or central america which both of them can be extremely dangerous and extremely volatile. Um, but what they don't have here is just so many different groups trying to get pissed. And that's what, you know, makes this ultimately the, the detractors and the people say, wait a second, is that how can it, even if this does provide stability um, for this little, let's say even a, this area, well, you have five, 10, 20, some people even say a hundred different militia groups. <coughs> so how do you, how do you possibly mitigate all these different risks? At the yeah. Same time? yeah. It sounds like such a, like such a, a, a like, I don't even want to call it a headache. It sounds exhausting. It sounds almost untenable. Excuse me, it's something in my throat. Yeah, no, it's 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 very high risk, and we've seen this actually uh, with Bitcoin mining, particularly in Bitcoin's history, Venezuela specifically, where um, it wasn't rebel groups or anything, but it was the Maduro regime identified Bitcoin mining operations and confiscated the the ASICs and began mining themselves on behalf of, of the Maduro government. And so that the risk certainly does exist. And, but there are, like it, if you can protect the site and then you mentioned like the Bitcoin, like if they show up, can they get the wallets? And that's, the, I think that's one of the most beautiful parts of Bitcoin is you can set up in a way where, yes, you can, <coughs> excuse me, you can be mining physically in Virunga at this hydroelectric dam but since bitcoin's digital you can have your wallet somewhere else protected maybe even in belgium or with somebody you trust in other parts of congo that's better protected you can store it there and send it from there but yeah no all these these variables add up it does come with risk but again i, I do think it does highlight a glimmer of hope where yes it may be happening in this extremely volatile area but hopefully 
it proves to be a model that is replicable and maybe again going back to the disincentivization to actually pick up a gun and steal somebody something from somebody maybe this paints a picture for others like oh maybe i don't need to pick up my gun and go take their resources maybe i could spin up a mining operation over here with this hydroelectric capacity and do the same thing just join them peacefully in, in this market not saying that's going to happen but um it does again create that glimmer of hope yeah i mean again if if in other places without electricity for instance can create hydro projects and one of them from an extension from those projects would be a a, a crypto mine it can then create basically passive income once you've already paid it off if that can then be distributed then that is totally a, um totally a model could be a model yeah and that's i mean even at this virunga facility right it's not even fully built out yet they have capacity for more like how much more energy could they bring on um i don't know exactly how much more they can bring on um i think you know i'm sure the volatility of the currency is a factor um i think there's there's other things at, at play here um I think that you might be seeing stuff like this in other places in Africa regionally sometime soon. Yeah. Um, there's a company Gridless out in Kenya where they're spinning up mini hydro dams. I heard about that in Kenya too. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great thing where like electricity from these hydro dams typically would be like 15, 16 cents a kilowatt hour. But since they have so much excess capacity and Bitcoin miners can come in and suck up that excess capacity, um, it provides enough revenue to these micro dams that they can lower the costs for the locals, the residential consumers of that electricity, um, which is a beautiful thing. And mm-hmm. that's another thing. I mean, we mentioned jobs earlier, but you were <clears throat> interacting with the individuals actually running this mining operation. Uh, and there were younger Congolese gentlemen who mm-hmm. may not have been aware of of Bitcoin or how it worked exactly, but they've been learning and they seem pretty passionate about what they're working on. What? Yeah, what I think, I think, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what are, what was, what's your perspective on what their, their lives are like? I think the, that if you get an opportunity to, to do something that is so different than what your peers get to do, it's, it's a big positive for one. You know, it's inspiring. It makes it feel like it's possible to have change. You know, again, it's if only about, I think there's 10, roughly a dozen uh, full-time Congolese staff at this location. Again, it's quite small. There was, I may be fudging this, but I believe several hundred temporary workers, you know, building this, this facility and, so it's not it's not the masses, but these are the kinds of questions that are in that gray area that from earlier we discussed is that for those who, who get it to benefit and though maybe by extension family or people hear about it, then these are incredible opportunities to, to, to change a life and to, to really dream big in a way that it's not like selling your, your startup or you know getting acquired. It's a chance to, to really Break out of um, break out of some of these poverty cycles 
in a real way that, that is incredibly inspiring. And so for you personally, I know you mentioned on when we talked on the phone earlier that you don't consider yourself a Bitcoin expert, um, but I, I, we didn't dive into like your notions of Bitcoin, if you had any before making the trip out to Varunga um, compared to your, your perspective on Bitcoin now. Like how, how do you think about Bitcoin? Did this trip change your mind at all? Well, you know, I'll tell you this. There's a lot of there's a lot of enthusiasm, and there's a lot of real excitement from Bitcoiners. Um, obviously, there's been some blows in the narrative in the last year plus. I think that there's a tendency sometimes people want to. Uh, some of the notion about the pollution has been a sore point for Bitcoiners who are very defensive sometimes about it. And I'll say this, a project like this, these kinds of projects uh, could really help that narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, that, it, that, it, that in a way that it's not a stretch. It's not, you know, if it's really running on clean power, uh, a hydroelectric power plant that uses a dam it's called a river run so it doesn't actually uh change the flow of the water too much and it's very minimally invasive um again passive it basically becomes passive income once it's paid off those are whether or not you believe in bitcoin those are positives and those are um even not even positive that, that's not a negative you know what i mean it, that's something that it's that's not harming um, if we want to go the climate route. It's not adding to that. Um, so that's that's something that I wanted to highlight um, as opposed to my feelings. I mean, and this is not the first time I've, I've written about blockchain stuff. I've written about some of the operations that Tesla is doing in Nevada with um, one of their big facilities. Um, Sometimes the story that of Bitcoin for for good, sometimes it's, it's a marketing tool, you know. Sometimes I think there is real potential for for good for 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 positive stuff. I think this in Virunga is one of those examples, but it can be very easy to to make it seem like hot air, and I think that's why there's also skepticism of something like this project in Africa because there's been a lot of, unfortunately, it's attracted a lot of kind of showboaters and grifters and a lot of folks who maybe go so, lean so far in that they turn off the masses. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of scammers out there who have uh, really drawn bad attention to the space. I mean, particularly in the last year, things like FTX, Celsius, BlockFi. Terra Luna, all that crap. When you get down to the fundamentals, like you mentioned at Virunga, really highlighting that it can bring uh, reliable, abundant energy to can help bring reliable, abundant energy to places. And then, yeah, on the narrative front too, like actually I'm part owner of a mining company. If we go a bit the opposite direction. We use natural gas to mine Bitcoin, mm -hmm. but um, we find stranded natural gas wells with no pipeline connectivity. They're just leaking methane. 
into the atmosphere. So Bitcoin mining in this context acts as um, an economic incentive to go clean up <clears throat> these stranded wells that are just sitting there rotting away and over time leaking methane into the atmosphere. So you show up, throw a generator on, on the well, create electricity to mine Bitcoin, use the gas in a very efficient way, prevent that methane leak and, and you know, prevent that um, methane from getting to the atmosphere, which is a way, so it's not incentivizing uh, quote-unquote renewable or clean energy, but it's cleaning up this energy that already exists and is just sitting out there. So it can help with the development of hydroelectric projects and then help clean up some of the nat gas projects that are already in existence today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's the end of the day, this is, um, this is somewhat of a speculation and we're gambling. This is what it is. I mean, it, it may be, if people want to make money on this, that's, that, that's their business and they're perfectly allowed to. And that's what the this is what this is about. Um, I, some of the questions of whether or not decentralization makes sense. I don't want to turn off you or your viewers, but like, you know, um, I'm not sure. I, some of these questions are continuing to be asked regulation, um, the need for not having, um, things be totally identifiable. Um, as you allude to FTX, there's, there are real questions here. If there is more transparency, maybe that helps. Um, maybe it's also not the, it doesn't replace the dollar. And maybe it's another currency within, within the financial space that, you know, that it has more of a legitimate state at the table. Um, questions that remain to be seen and are quite interesting. Yeah. No, I think, um, I mean, I'm, what do you consider? I mean, what many would consider, I don't know. I don't like to label myself for probably like an anarcho-capitalist that um, I think regulation is bad. I think governments only make things worse. Um, and I think Bitcoin's really proving that and it's distributed nature um, can help. Like, go back to the transparency point. Like think of individuals, Congolese individuals who may want to get out of the country and take their little amount of wealth with them without being able to be identified. Like Bitcoin is a perfect tool to enable that. Whereas the native currency or the dollar even would make that significantly harder, especially if you're moving physical uh, units of those currencies. Um, yeah, I think that's what, and that's the thing with like centralized control uh, and transparency. Like you can't, um, you can't, you can't have, this token that's worth accumulating if you don't have the distributed network that, that provides inherent utility that doesn't exist elsewhere, uh, particularly in the form of being able to send transactions in a pseudonymous peer-to-peer -peer fashion without the prospects of a despotic government or a corporation that may not like what you're doing telling you that no, you can't make that transaction. I don't know what to say. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm thinking about the crypto, what did you say, crypto anarchist? Uh, and I'm just, I'm still uh, fumbling on that one. Anarcho. Anarcho, sorry. Anarcho-capitalist. Yeah. I, 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 tried, I tried to warn you before we went on that uh, I'm just a regular guy. 
I know. I still have some some I still have some paper money in my pocket over here. I do as well. I do as well. And I think um I'm I'm under the purview that, that Bitcoin's an imperative moving forward, obviously. I've erected this media company. Um mm-hmm. I've dedicated my life to it. So that's um let's just explain my perspective to you. But I think uh Absolutely. No, I think again, even though like I'm extremely happy that um you took the effort to get over to Virunga and write the story because again, like Bitcoin, like the Bitcoin mining is just um, an interesting variable and overarching, incredible human interest piece and highlighting some very, uh, very important problems that we need to face as a society, particularly around energy generation, these resources that we're taking out of uh, Congo, um, leveraging um, child labor are bordering on um, slave labor to a certain extent um, in highlighting ways in which this area is trying to better itself through electricity generation is extremely important. Yeah, we're, we're at a very strange time and a very dangerous time in so many ways. And, you know, unfortunately, everything is so interconnected and we're all so we're all kind of at the mercy of everyone else in a sense that everything from our day-to-day lives to the supply chains and the way the economies work and the climate and everything else i i want to be hopeful but it's it's sometimes if it's challenging to challenging given the the state of things that we're in and you know that's the flip side of being a reporter, being a journalist, is seeing so much of that up close. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine what it's like seeing, seeing what you've seen on the ground. Um, but again, don't want to belabor the point. But going back to Bitcoin, like we have fixed the money, fix the world, and big neon lights right outside our studio here, and that's what I think a lot of people like to focus on uh, the political taste of the day and blame politicians red white there's gonna be red blue whatever it may be um where i think the core and the root of the problem globally is that we have fucked up the money everywhere and money is the most important tool to coordinate economic activity to allow people to pull themselves out of poverty and and make better lives for themselves and um i think what's going on in Baruga is an example for that being able to monetize this open monetary network you know, to utilize it yeah, to, to monetize absolutely. your wasted energy. Um, absolutely. If it's excess energy, it's a, it's a great way to, to, to use that. And, um, you know, I believe that I'll probably be going back there at some point. I hope it gets a little safer. I'm not going to go until it does. Um, and I think that this operation there will be growing and you'll see similar similar models in the region. Oh yeah, that's incredible to hear. Um, before we wrap up here, is there anything, uh, any final thoughts you'd like to leave the audience? Um, places to, to look into? Maybe, uh, is there any way they can help out with what's going on in Virunga? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I believe the park does accept uh, crypto donations. I believe they accept Bitcoin donations. Um, I think if, if you're interested and, you, and you're 
and you're interested in, in, in this topic and what these people are doing, you know, I encourage people to see the, the Netflix film Virunga. I encourage them to, um, you know, visit the website and, and take a look at some of my reporting on this. Um, but just to kind of, it's, it's very easy right now in, the, in today's world to just look at a, a tweet or a headline or whatever and, and you kind of keep it moving because we have so much stimuli we're, we're all bombarded with. Um, but maybe take a second and, and, and read a little bit more on it because this place, like so many other uh, fascinating regions, is so far beyond that just headline or that tweet or what have you. And um, another, it's almost a forgotten place and, and full of people who matter just as much as those suffering in Ukraine or wherever else or your, you know, your own stuff. And we, um, we often don't don't see or don't care about what doesn't impact us. But again, in this interconnected world, you have a cell phone and if you have technology, good chance that it's coming from a place like this. Mm-hmm. And um, it is, uh, it's an eye opener when you see we're all really connected in a lot of the ways that we don't even realize. Yes. Completely agree. Um, the cobalt. I haven't read the book yet, but watch the interview and it's, it's pretty um, jaw dropping. Yeah, how, yeah. how yeah. people don't think of the front end of the supply chains; they just see their iPhone. They, yeah, life's better. Yeah, Cobalt, Cobalt Red is a fascinating book. King Leopold's Ghost by Adam Oakshield, fascinating book. Um, and then Dancing in the Shadow of Monsters by Jason Stearns, who I interviewed for my piece. And I also interviewed Adam Oakshield. All fascinating geopolitical uh, nonfiction that set up some of this some of this uh, scenario that I've been writing about and just are ultimately fascinating. Yes. Go check it out, freaks. Adam, again, we put this together last minute. I appreciate you um, being nimble here and and hopping on and and short notice. Again, I think it's a very important story to highlight and um, I'm very humbled that that you agreed to come on and, and talk about your experience. Thanks for having me. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Thank you.